That worked. That was all right, wasn't it? <laughs> it actually happened. Well, welcome if you've not been here this uh, to Beacon Church before. Welcome this morning. My name is Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. We're going through a uh, series, working our way through part of the book of Acts. Uh, it's known as the Acts of the Apostles. It uh, comes after the Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and then Acts. And in there, there is uh, a, a series of incidents, a couple of journeys that the Apostle Paul goes on called his second and third missionary journeys when he returns to the churches he's planted, wants to do another tour to see how they're getting on and plant more. In the meantime, we're following those two journeys, working our way through the middle section of Acts. We've now reached Acts 17, and we're going to start on verse 16 in just a minute. And I don't know if you remember, Louise uh, Fennell was here last week, and she said, previously in Unstoppable Church series, she did a, put on a Jack Bauer voice, and she told us where we've been before. Well, last week, she explained what happens when Paul visits the... Uh, the, uh, the people in Berea, and they were noble and eager. They, wanted to, they were keen to know what God's Word says. They didn't dismiss what Paul was saying, the good news of Jesus. They didn't dismiss him immediately. They had a good intentions, a good heart, and they wanted to eagerly explore his Word. And Louise opened that up and, and reminded us that as much as Paul's attitude from his previous incident where he'd started a riot, as you do, um, many of us could have retreated from that. But his attitude was like, no, this is God's purpose, and I'm going to press on understanding that God's got the bigger picture, even if I haven't. And she said to us, what, can you remember what she said to us? What was the tag, the title? How we perceive is ha- affect how we proceed. We can hold ourselves back from God's purposes and not step into them because of fear, because of don't want to step out of our comfort zone, because we think he, either he, he lied to us or we got it wrong and so on and so forth. She helped us through that really helpfully. And now Paul, he's moved on from Berea and he's turned up in Athens. And this is what happens. Verse 16. Now while, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, this is for his friends Silas and Timothy to come and join him. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said... What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. 
yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For, and he quotes their local poets, he said, In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. Come gather round people, wherever you roam, and admit that the waters around you have grown, and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone, and if your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming, or you'll sink like a stone, for the times, they are a-changing. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land, and don't criticise what you don't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand, because the times, they are a-changing. Bob Dylan wrote that in 1963, and even back then he recognised the world was changing very, very, very quickly. And he's saying, open your eyes, you've got to get up with this. The next generation, you're not going to get them. And they're not going to get the generation after. Does it still feel the same today, 50 years later? Still very much the same. So if Paul can quote artists of his time, I'm going to quote artists of our time. I'm going to quote one a bit more recent towards the end this morning. For us, the world actually is changing even quicker than it was then in the 60s. Computer power now, now, computer power now. I haven't woken up yet, it's not lunchtime. Computer power now is doubling every two years. Every, I mean, what I've got on my phone is now way more computer power than they got them into the moon. It's just in my hand. Every two years, computer power doubles, which means that by 2030, it could be equal to human level intelligence. Ooh, scary. The world is rapidly changing. Language is changing. The word sick no longer means what you think it means. <laughs> on Friday night, I was running the youth hub down on Friday night, and one of the lads said to me, Steve is a sick name, and I'm very proud of myself. I have a sick, I have a sick name. <laughs> My phone can tell me how I slept last night. I can show you a log of how I slept last night, and it shows you the tracks of when I was moving, when I was waking up, light sleep, deep sleep. My phone can show me that. My phone can take me to somewhere I've never heard of, almost to the meter. My phone can play me my latest music just by me talking to it. The world is changing rapidly, isn't it? But it's not just technology and, and language. It's also just philosophy and how we think. We don't realise how we think is very, very different to previous generations. We think we're similar, but we're not. In the US, and we're not much different at all, in the US, Josh McDowell did a survey in the 1970s of evangelical youth. Okay? This isn't just general youth, evangelical youth in the churches. And said, do you believe in absolute truth? And in the 70s, 51% said no. There's no absolute truth other than what I decide myself. 51% in the 70s. He's done it again recently. Guess what it is? 91% believe there's no such thing as absolute truth apart from myself. That's in our churches. 
Our philosophies, the way we think, is rapidly changing as much as technology and everything around us. And times can feel harder and harder to keep up with, to understand and to respond to. Now, 2,000 years ago, it might have felt for Paul, he's entering into this new, strange place, and he's trying to keep up with what the place is like. Actually, we feel we're in a very different place now. Actually, he had the same problem, just different ingredients. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You see, today... Vastly, we have a lot of materialism going on in our Western world, don't we? In our, our society. A lot of materialism going on. It's about the physical. It's not about the supernatural. It's about I will be satisfied in stuff. Acquiring more stuff, creating more stuff, and ingenuity. I'll be happy with things. There's materialism, the physical. Or there's pantheism, the generalised spirituality. It's, it's nice. Mysticism is attractive, isn't it? And there's a generalised spirituality that doesn't require much accountability on your behalf, but it's nice to be a part of. There's a pantheism, which means God is, God is in everything. Those are quite common today. We're not in a non-spiritual age. We're just in a generalised spiritual age or materialistic. Different people, well, sometimes a mash of the two, but different people like one or the other. See, back then, it wasn't a lot different. Who are these people that Paul meets? In verse 18... It talks about Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. What do those words mean? Epicureans were materialists. They didn't believe in no God, but they believed that God was not involved. This is purely a physical realm now. He made it, stepped back, absent landlord, leaves us to it. They were materialists. That's the Epicureans. And the Stoics believed that God wasn't personal, but was in, in everything. Pantheism, that I've just mentioned. And they're saying that our own reasoning and our reflection is the answer to life's problems. Again, does that sound familiar? It's actually the same problem, just different ingredients today. It's exactly the same. But Paul, what he did, he was observant. He looked around, he was observant of the culture, and he saw opportunity to introduce people to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I want to do the same this morning. I don't want to talk so much about what he did. I want to do what he did. Let's have a look, little look at our society I want to look at objects of worship in our society. I want to see if it points to an unknown God. And then we'll talk about knowing him. You up for that? Yes. Good. I'm glad. Objects of worship. What altars can we see today? You see, we can feel like we don't have any temples really today. It's a bit of a different world. But actually, it's not a lot different at all. So what Paul did, he went to the marketplace. He went to the Agora. The marketplace is the heartbeat of the culture. We can see its values and its wares on display. So we can do the same. He says in verse 23, um, I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. He was looking around. For us today, we can even just see trends and changes in our high streets, both physical high streets and online as well, and see changes in our society. There's telltale clues in the physical high streets. Mobile phone shops, they're increasing all the time. That, tell, that tells us a lot about where we're at. Lots and lots of them coming up, either second-hand or first-hand mobile phones and related. There is a booming coffee and tea shop industry in our country. It hasn't stopped. You think we've reached saturation. I was talking to someone just recently who uh, works in the high-end business of, of uh, coffee franchises. They said it hasn't finished. Next five years, it's going to continue to boom big time. Not just coffee, but high-end tea shops as well. Now's the time. So now's the time to jump in and get your shares in. There's a booming coffee and tea shop industry. Tattoos and convenience stores have trebled on our high streets. We've got three in one stretch of road in Herne Bay alone, of uh, tattoo shops. Tattoo shops and convenience stores have trebled. 
But also online shopping has changed too. Amazon is an online supermarket, isn't it, really? It's the same thing. And trends are changing there. Consumers want to spend money on experiences. You see trends in different websites that are popping up and how much people uh, spend on it. They want to spend more money on going out, on cinema, on getting tickets for gigs and so on, and holidays, things like that. Less money on meals at home or at the gym. We're getting more into experiences. Experiences is a big thing in our culture. And society is rapidly changing. But in amongst that, we still don't feel we're worshipping gods. Well, that's just stuff. That's just interests. That's just hobbies. Actually, I suggest they are gods. Same problem, different ingredients. Neil Gaiman is one of my favourite writers. He's an English writer, lives in the States. He's, he's British. And he wrote a book in 2001 called American Gods. It's a big novel, big tome. And it's about the ancient gods of the immigrants to North America. So you've got Odin from the Vikings, and you've got Bilquis, the goddess of love, and those people. They're, they, they're no longer worshipped. The new generation of modern day are worshipping other gods like drugs and technology and um, celebrity and media. And these old gods, they want their worship back. And they have to, it becomes a big battle between the old gods and the new. And actually what he's written there is actually really helpful. It's a good reflection on modern society that we do worship gods. They just have different names, actually. So let's have a little look at some gods that might be prevalent in our society at the moment. This is going to be brief. We could spend hours on these, couldn't we? See if any of these resonate with you, yourself, perhaps. The God of comfort. Oh, did I just hear a couple of groans? We do, don't we? We like comfort. We like everything instant. We don't have to work for it. We like microwaves. We like ordering with one tap on the button on the Amazon app. With the oracle at the end of our finger. You don't know anything. You don't have to go down the library. Google will tell you in just a few seconds. We like stuff instant. We like it easy. We like binging TV shows. They come out in one hit now. You can watch them all in one day. You can spend 24 hours on telly watching the whole series. You don't have to wait next, till next week for the next episode, do you? Some of us have done that, maybe. <coughs> maybe. Comfort food. It's a bit of a modern invention, really. You don't hear about medieval people rushing to the ice cream when they feel upset, do you? It's true, huh? Comfort food is high in carbs, high in fat, high in sugar. We run to it. It makes us feel better when we're feeling down. Comfort food is a bit of a modern, a modern symptom, I would suggest, of our God of comfort. We like comfort. We don't like being out of our comfort zone, do we? Comfort, I suggest, is one God today. Another, entertainment. Karl Marx once said that religion was the opiate for the masses, and I suggest it's entertainment today. It anaesthetizes us, doesn't it? I like to watch something to help me switch my brain off, is the common phrase. Actually, I suggest that's quite dangerous. Watch stuff. Enjoy it. I love, this could be a god for me to be honest, I love entertainment. You know me, I love my films, don't I? Big time. I love my films. But I've got to be careful I don't spend so much in them that I'm anaesthetising myself to stuff I need to deal with, things I need to get on with, etc. It can suck up my time. Watching something with your brain off, you need to realise that I mean, Alfred Hitchcock was renowned for this, for manipulating an audience using certain shots, the length of sh camera shots and angles, using music, using certain dramatic beats. They can create an atmosphere where, in, a, in an audience, a huge majority of them are synced in the, having the same emotion at the same time, according to a scene. It's manipulating you. What it does, it stirs the heart, and it could be feeding you a wrong message, depending on what the story is. 
there are values on display in our cinema that we need to be aware of that may not be any good for us. People say, oh, Christians shouldn't watch horror. I'm not going to go into this too much, but I think some horror is okay. It's about good versus evil and supernatural. And if, if it affects you negatively, don't watch it. However, I would suggest some rom-coms are more insidious than a lot of horrors out there because of the values they can feed us. Just to be discerning. We can't watch something with our brains switched off. Screen time. <laughs> Screen time. Kids today are... Uh, Spending as much time on their, twice as much time on their screens as they are playing outside now. Taiwan have now made it, uh, now parents in Taiwan are legally obligated to monitor their kids' screen time. Otherwise they get a thousand pound fine. Maybe that might not be a bad thing. But us grown-ups don't get off lightly either. Generally speaking, UK society was spending nearly four hours a day on TV or the equivalent. And it works out to about a day a week on telly. Average. So if you're doing less than that, some people are doing a lot more. It's a God, isn't it? Here's a question. Do you watch TV or are you worshipping the God of entertainment? It can look the same, but it can be two very different things. Money. Still a God. Money. Debt is still racking up. That's why we as Beacon Church, along with a couple of other churches in town, run a debt, um, debt advice centre. With working with um, Christians Against Poverty. Credit cards are too easy to buy things and then worry about paying it later. Advertising keeps trying to persuade you that you won't be happy until you get this item. Many times I've heard people go, I got this, it was really cheap. Yeah, but did you need it? No, but it was really cheap. Yeah, but you just, yeah, okay. We want to get stuff, don't we? And therefore we want to earn money. Normally, the answer today, there's people I speak to, some, a lot of my friends, when they go for a promotion and that, it's because they're having trouble paying their bills and they want to earn more. They haven't looked at spending less. Earn more, earn more, money. Career can be another god. You can end up spending so little time with your family, it could indicate there's an idol going on there. There can be good intentions behind it. I want to provide for my family. But if you're not spending much time with the family you're providing for, something's missing, something's lost. Career can feed your ego, can feed your sense of accomplishment, gives you influence, can give you power as you work your way up the ladder. There's value in promotion. There's value in, you know, some people are gifted at leadership. You know, don't earn, I'm not saying don't earn big bucks and have a big position in, you know, as a CEO or whatever. I'm not saying that at all. But just be sure it's not a God you're worshipping because that's very, very different. Sex is still a God today. It's always about seeking the greatest stimulation, about objectifying other people. People become things, don't they? There are apps, there are websites for hookups for married people to have affairs. It exists, that's the world we're in. It's all about sex, 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 sex. Sex is a good thing, but in the right place. 50 years after the liberating 60s, we've now got 13-year-olds sexting each other, sending each other explicit messages and images. It happens today. I know it's happened in local churches. They found out what their youth were up to. They had to have long chats. It happens. It becomes part of normal society because of prayer pressure and so on. Curiosity. Sex is not wrong. Sex is not bad. But there's a place for it that God ordains. 
One more, just because of time. Fame and celebrity is a god today in our society. People get famous now for being famous. People get famous on TV for being famous for watching TV on TV. It's true. Pop culture eats itself, doesn't it? Time and time again, when young people are polled and asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Number one, famous. It's true. That's what they say. I want to be famous. Don't care how. Success now is valued more when it's acknowledged by others than when it still occurs in obscurity. Does that make sense? We're not happy now to be successful on the quiet. We want people to know about it. It's about affirmation from others, isn't it? Fame and celebrity is still a god today. But how does this help us? These are just some examples. How does this help us point out an unknown god? Because people think they're satisfied. Sometimes I've asked, I've asked people, does this satisfy you? And sometimes they say yes, but you can see they're getting a bit twitchy. But I'd argue it will never ultimately satisfy you. But people think it does, which is why they keep wanting more. Which actually proves the point it's not satisfying them, to be honest. But all of these gods I've just listed, when they become work, they're all good, they can all be good things in the right place. But when they become worship, they actually compound together as a worship of self. It's all about self. It's about me being famous, me being known, everybody loving me. It's about satisfaction in food, satisfaction in status, satisfaction in craving another hit of a cultural opiate, wherever that might be. Getting that buzz, entertainment and so on. Which I would suggest actually helps us recognise an unknown God that still exists today. He's still there, lingering. That statue to an unknown God that's just sitting there quietly amongst all the others that Paul observed. See, Mike Wilkerson in his book Redemption, he says this. He says, to be human is to worship. None of us don't worship. We all worship. To be human is to worship. It's not just singing songs in church. It's how we live our lives every moment of every day. Every thought, every word, every deed, every feeling and every desire. You worship what you live for. Whatever is most worthy of your attention and devotion, you can't turn off worship. It's your basic human wiring. He continues to say, to not worship is to not live. It's like a garden hose stuck on full blast. You can aim it at the grass, you can aim it at the car, you can aim it at the shrubs, but you cannot stop its flow. We're always worshipping something. And self in our society, it's the rise of the individual over the past 200 years. Individualism has risen. And self has become, yet again, our number one God. It just manifests itself in different ways. Celebrity and fame and money and career, etc. But what's interesting is that we're not, we call ourselves a secular age, don't we? Secular times. Western world is a secular world. It doesn't actually mean it's non-spiritual. What it means is spirituality is one option among many. That's what it really means. There's a, um, I keep losing my place, it gets jumping. There's a man called Charles Taylor. He's a Christian philosopher. And he wrote a 900-page book in 2009 called The Secular Age, where he starts talking about this and helps us to get to the nugget of what's, what's really at stake here. Now, it's too big for all of us to read. So Jamie Smith, another philosopher in the States, Canadian guy, but he's in the States, he wrote a 130-page shorthand version of it, which I've now read, 
but it's still got long words in it, and I'm hoping for a 30-page York notes to help <laughs> understand that bit. But it's a very good book, and his book is called um, How Not to Be Secular. And what it basically just distills the 900-page book down to 130 pages just to get to the, the nuggets of truth for us lay people. And what he says in here is just observing, Charles Taylor is observing the past 200 years of society. And it's the transference from the out to the in. It used to be, we are beholden to something bigger than us. Call it God, call it what you like, but we understand there's something bigger than us. But over time, the individual has risen and it's become about, we decide what's right rather than we are told what is right. Does that make sense? So there's the outer, here are morals, here are true values that undergird society. Now they are not decided by an understanding of something bigger than us, they are decided by, well, I'll make my mind up. Thank you very much. And this out-to-in transference, remember what I was saying about the evangelical youth of today, 91% believe there's no absolute truth other than what I say. And now amongst that, Christianity has just become one option among many. It becomes a potpourri, you pick and mix, choose what you want. And so today, this is what Charles Taylor says. He says, now we've got a rise of, we've got done away with temples of religion. We've rejected what is transcendent, what is bigger than us. But in rejecting it, there's a big hole. It's a bit of the cheesy cliche, the God-shaped hole. We've used that before. Actually, it's very true. There's something missing that society, our Western society, is trying to fill. So instead of temples of religion, we've now got temples of art music and going to gigs and clubs and watching cinema and TV and so on. We've got temples of art, art galleries and so on. We've got temples of culture, the high street and having experiences and holidays. It becomes a temple, it becomes a place we worship. We've also got temples of learning, academia and always learning the new thing, puffing ourselves up with knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing, just depends how you use it. The ever-increasing self-help sections in bookshops but finding the answer inside yourself. Obviously you haven't found it yet because they keep coming out with more, don't they? Instead of temples of religion, we've now got temples of art, temples of culture and temples of learning. And the word that Charles Taylor uses, he says, Western society is haunted. Something is missing. We've rejected the transcendent. We've rejected the something that is bigger than us. Realised something's missing and we're trying to fill it with other things. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon writes, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity in our hearts, an understanding that there is something bigger than us, and we can never fully understand it, can never fully grasp it, but it makes us realise there's something bigger than us. What we as Western society have done is rejected that, and we're now haunted by its absence. And I suggest this is where we find our unknown God, the gap that cannot be filled, but its absence is still sensed, even if people can't, can't consciously put that into words. To all the gods I've just listed, fame and money and so on and so forth, they're made in our image, they're made to suit us. And back then, Paul was looking around at all these objects of worship, and they were personages with names, shaped around the people's needs of the time. Today, we just have abstract themes and sensations that are shaped around our needs of today. They're our gods. It's the same thing. It's the same problem. And the unknown God that Paul introduces them to is the one that we are made in the image of. It's the other way around. Jesus, the creator. 
And he hasn't changed one bit. What was it Derek was reminding us of earlier? Exactly the same yesterday, today and forever. So let's just read these verses where Paul addresses the crowd around him after having observed. Let's just read it again. In light of what we just heard today, let's read it for today. From verse 23, halfway through, he said, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. It is actually not far from each one of us. We'll come back to that in a minute. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or digital zeros and ones or foodstuffs or bank balances. It's the same thing. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus. He points to the judge of all mankind who God raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. Man of history, declared himself to be God, proved that by rising from the dead. He proved himself to be who he said he was. This unknowable God put on human form and walked amongst us. He was healing, he was teaching, he died that we might know the Father and then live through his sacrifice, standing in our place as fallen man. And then he rose again to demonstrate both his divinity and to secure that victory over sin, the stains in our heart that keep turning back to self. We've got this inward gravity, haven't we, all the time that we have to fight. He's dealt with that on the cross and then rising again. And this God, he is real, He's immersed in history. He walked on this planet wearing a suit of flesh. He's available to us right now and he's always willing to make himself known. 1 John chapter 5, Jesus' best friend writes this. And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding. 1 John 5.20 We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul likes to quote from poets of his time. I'm going to quote from another one now. There's a young man called Rag and Bone Man. He's in the charts at the moment. His album, Human, is fantastic. Hit number one. And on the, on the album, there's a song called Grace. He's, he's not a believer. Rag and Bone Man, his real name's Rory from Brighton. He's a bit different, isn't it? He... Um, He's not, he's not a Christian or anything, but he's searching. You can hear all the way through the album, he's searching for something. Searching for something bigger. He knows it's missing. And in the, in the song Grace, this is what the chorus says. In the eyes of a saint, I'm a stranger. We're all trying to find a way. At the death of every darkness, there's a morning. Though we all try, we're all one step from grace. And what did Paul say? 
Next, 17. Rogan Bowman says we're all one step from grace. Paul says at the end of verse 27, yet he, God, is actually not far from each one of us. I don't know if you recognise that sense of haunting in your soul, but you can know this. You are just one step away from grace. The unknown God is not unknowable. He's not fully understandable. If he was, he'd be less than us. We're not meant to understand him fully because he's God. He's meant to be difficult to grasp hold of. But he is graspable and he is knowable. So as Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Before the living God, one day you're going to have to stand and make an account for yourself. And you will have no excuse. I did this. I did that. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. There's no excuse before a perfect God, having presented you with his son Jesus Christ who came to die in your place. You can know the, the seemingly unknowable God. You can know him through his son Jesus right now, this morning. Amen. And if you're already a believer, if you already know him through Jesus, don't let other gods draw your eye. I can see the temptation all the time. You're not alone. We need to fix our eyes on the bigger one. I've said this before, but in Indiana Jones 4... It's the lesser of the four. But there's a moment in there when Indiana Jones's uh, girlfriend, Marion, they haven't seen each other 20 years, she suddenly turns up and they start having an argument. They've, they've, they're hostages, but of course they have an argument. And while they're having an argument, she starts having, starts having a go at him. I bet you've had loads of other girlfriends since me. He's like, well, yeah. She goes, well, what happened to them? He goes, well, they weren't you. That's the key for us as believers, to turn our eyes from other idols. There is discipline involved. No, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to dabble. But the only thing truly that will keep you from temptation is seeing him as even bigger. It's not, no, I won't do this. It's, but you're not him. That's the key for us. I just want to pray. I'm going to leave it there. Lord, we thank you that even though the times are a-changing too fast sometimes for us to keep up with, we thank you that you are still just as relevant today as you were back then. We thank you that you have not changed one iota. You are still good and you always are good and there are no other gods before you. That's what your word tells us. Lord, we thank you that even though you live in unapproachable lights, you are so other to us. By your Son, we can know you as our Father. Lord, we thank you. I'm going to say, if you don't know him this morning, here's your opportunity just to speak to him and just to say, just to say simple words such as this, that, Lord, I know I'm broken. I know I'm a sinner. I know there is a dark part of my heart that I can never keep clean. I can never rinse. No matter what I do or what I avoid, I need you to stand holy before a perfect God. I thank you that Jesus took my place and suffered the Father turning his face away as he 
hung on that cross in our place with our sin upon his shoulders. And say, Lord, I place my trust in what Jesus has done and not in what I can do, that I might know you, the unknowable God. Say, help me by Holy Spirit to step into this new life, knowing you as Father. Lord, come and speak to us for the rest of this week and beyond, Lord. Whatever it is you've spoken to us about this morning, may it not disappear. May it linger in our hearts that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to another for you, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. 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 Thank you, everybody. Teas and coffees.